0: I think there is though, chronically perhaps as there has been for a long time, a a, dist- a, a difference between, you know, Wall Street and, and Main Street America. And that's a certainly very much different topic. <laughs> when, when I was working uh you know on Wall Street in New York City, like we'd model stuff out and we were kids, you know, and, and we thought we were so smart. Mm-hmm. And we were, you know, we, we were smart, you know, but that's very, very different from then translating it to the the you know execution of, of you know, how this loan is going to be used to drive some sort of a return. We stand today. The Business Method. The business With method. a shout out. The
1: Business Method.
0: The Business Method Podcast.
1: The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneur's systems, methods, tools, and tactics for location independence. On our second series, we are interviewing 100 entrepreneurs that have built location-independent businesses that generate a million dollars or more in annual revenue. There's a growing movement of people building these caliber of businesses, and we are getting behind the minds, the logic, and the science of what it takes to build businesses like this. On top of that, we also gather entrepreneurs at events and retreats around the world. This October, we are having our annual event in Thailand, Get Shit Done Live. It's 10 days of high-performance productivity, targeted collaboration, and rapid execution designed for entrepreneurs to get a lot of work Done in a little amount of time. Some say it's like ten months of work in ten days. There's a magic that happens when brilliant minds come together to push one another towards productive execution. That is exactly what this retreat is about. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That is thebusinessmethod.com. Now, let's jump in today's show. The Business Method. From working on Wall Street to microfinance in Tibet to a frozen food business in Florida and the Dominican Republic with ten thousand distributors and an online Chinese medicine business, our guest today has seen a lot as an entrepreneur. John McGarvey, the founder of Dow Labs, joins us. He's an incredibly seasoned businessman with a wealth of knowledge. We get behind his story and discuss the Wall Street versus Main Street mentality, the inner workings of microfinance in developing countries, building a successful company, and Chinese medicine. We also Dive into the importance of goal setting and the hacks to maintain a highly productive life. It's an exciting episode, you guys. Without further ado, let's welcome John McGarvey to the show. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. And listeners, we have John McGarvey on the show. John, how are you today,
0: my friend? I am it's a Friday morning in beautiful Minneapolis, and I'm great. Uh, how are you?
1: I'm fantastic. Thanks for asking. I actually used to live up near Minneapolis in a little town called New Ulm, which is probably a couple hours away to the south. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And um, I worked, believe it or not, I did an internship on a hog farm there in the summer you of go. 2002. There and, you go. Uh, I'm curious, why do you, why is, uh, Minneapolis is your home base,
0: right? It is my home base. Uh, I'm originally from, uh, from Des Moines, Iowa, and growing up, <laughs> Um, like all people and things in Minnesota, there's, uh, this culture of having a cabin. Um, and so my family an extended family had a a cabin in in Northern Minnesota, uh, that we went to all the time. And, uh, consequently I spent a lot of time in the twin cities, which is where I'm, I'm based now with my family and my business, um, but was very much exposed to it, um, Uh, throughout my childhood and and at times throughout my my professional life as well. I've kind of lived all over the place, though. I spent a lot of time in New York. I uh, lived in Boston, Massachusetts for quite a while. Um, I went to both undergrad and grad school in Chicago. Um, I think we'll get into this. I spent a lot of time in the Dominican Republic, uh, China, and and Florida. And I, I can't say enough after putting all those sort of like together that I'm very, very happy to be kind of where we are. I'm a Midwestern by heart. Um, and, um, it's a great place to, uh, to both run a business and then as well, uh, to, to raise a family.
1: Yeah. So you're kind of near my old stomping grounds. I grew up outside of Kansas city and I actually lived for uh, a while in 2009 in Osceola, Iowa, just to the South of Des Moines. Yeah. And then, um, I've been up on a couple of fishing trips up to Eli or is it Ellie or Ellie, Minnesota. Yeah. yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful up there. We did our senior trip in high school and, uh, it was a wild adventure. And, um, but yeah, that's, you know, there's something, uh, I, I like Minnesota. People in Minnesota are just nice, you know, oh, they're, sure. they're nice folks, down home folks, you know, they, they, they wouldn't hurt a fly and they'd help you out you know they'd break their break their back
0: helping you out and so it's a great place to live
1: i think raise a family too right
0: absolutely it it offers a little bit of everything people kind of dump on the weather all the time in in the winter but you've got to embrace it um and we do and um that's just kind of part of you know part of the 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 package of living here but i i wonder what, what were you doing in oco iowa
1: uh, well, long story short, I, I was living in Phoenix. Um, I started my first business. It, it. I went broke because of the recession in 2008. And um, my friend, consequently, at the exact same time I went broke and I was lost in my life, didn't know where to go, his wife passed away. And he was running a farm in um, southern Iowa there. And he was living in Osceola. And I was like... Well, I don't have much in my life now. I'll just come back and help you on the farm. And he's like, I'm lost in my life. And it was a best friend from college. We went to Northwest Missouri State. And yeah. so I drove my truck from Phoenix back to Iowa, and I had like less than two hundred dollars in my bank account. And we just kind of leaned on each other for support for the next nine months, and kind of reestablished our lives together. And so it was a it was a great experience, um, yeah, and a precious experience. But uh, yeah, I got to yeah. sp- I got to, I got to enjoy southern Southern Iowa lifestyle. It was great.
0: That's uh, that's nice. The only um, anecdote I have about Osceola specifically because mm-hmm. it's a dot on the map um, for a long time I thought I wanted to be a commercial airline pilot uh-huh. um, and this goes back to my days of, of being in high school so I took private pilot lessons for, for a while um, and they, they would always uh, take us down to Osceola which had a step above uh, a grass landing strip um, <laughs> and uh, and we would sit and do like these what they call touch and goes and I learned uh, to fly, well the first Time I flew an airplane by myself was in Osceola, Iowa, and it was several months later that I almost bought the farm, as they say, and almost did a controlled crash that probably would have taken me out um, <laughs> in Osceola. And oh, wow. I, I hung up the wings, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm not an airline pilot. Let's put it that way, but uh, <laughs> t- totally random.
1: What well, well, could be a uh, uh, maybe a bad luck city for you or a good luck city? <laughs> was the big was the giant cowboy in Osceola when you were flying? Oh, Do you remember? The- I never. The giant cowboy by the casino?
0: So the only time I got out of like and touched the ground in Osceola was to refuel an airplane. Okay. So I, 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 that was, that is my experience with Osceola. So gotcha. no, I, I, I'm, I don't know if he was there or not.
1: Okay. All right. Well let's move on because the listeners are probably bored with our Midwest talk, <laughs> but <laughs> we, we like it anyway. Um, we, we want to get to know you. Let's talk, uh, let's talk your past. Now you've, done quite a bit of amazing things in your entrepreneurial Thanks. career. And uh, I was thoroughly impressed with your your bio that was sent over to me. And so let's start kind of, um, I guess you could say where it all kind of started for you, wherever you feel like it, uh, your story started and and then becoming the entrepreneur that you are today.
0: Absolutely. Um, and it does go back to, to Midwest uh, to a certain extent. And where like that was then and, and what I'm doing now. And, and, um, and it'll make sense here in a second. Um, so I, I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa, and I went to a public high school um, in Des Moines. And I studied Chinese as a language offering. Um, and uh, it was quite, quite unique back then at that yeah. time because, you know, China then wasn't what it is today. And from a public high school, particularly in Des Moines, Iowa, it was very unusual to have that. Mm-hmm. And it was basically just French and, and Spanish. So I, I grew up in Des Moines. Um, and then I uh, ultimately went to college in Chicago at Northwestern University, um, and my sort of career story starts there um, in as much as, you know, back then or probably still now, uh, there was this big progression after Northwestern life that you you went into – if you're going to be in business, quote-unquote, you became a, a management consultant or you went into investment banking, and I chose the latter. Um, and I um, uh, worked in Boston for uh, several years, and then ultimately went to um, to uh, uh, New York City, where I worked for a private equity fund. Um, and that was all very, very good experience. But I can't say I was the happiest camper in the world um, because I think at some point we'll kind of get into this. You got to align your strengths and, and your passions with you know what you do on a daily basis, or it all kind of falls apart at some point. Um, but it was during that time in in. Uh, New York that uh, a mentor of mine who was then um, uh, a portfolio manager at uh, uh, Bear Stearns, which we know kind of where that went, but he was on the private Mm -hmm. equity side, and he said, hey, look, man, there are a million of you guys um, running around this town. Uh, And by that he meant there's a bunch of like financial wonks that kind of are a little egotistical, very smart, but they sit in cubicles like I was running financial spreadsheets and models. And he's like, if you really want to differentiate yourself kind of in this industry, what you really need to do is get out and get your hands dirty. And in particular, I think his example was he didn't work on a hog farm, but he went and worked at a – Uh, a cow slaughtering or harvesting facility in like North Carolina, and he was their CFO for a couple of years. And I had a couple of these other sort of experiences, uh, with people giving me that advice, like get out of this for a while and go figure out what makes a business run and get your hands dirty, either literally or fr- figuratively, but like get, get out of, of just the comforts of, of Excel and uh, figure out how you actually make cash flow flow. Um, and so that was advice that kind of stuck with me uh, because I was looking to make a change. I wasn't necessarily happy, but I thought this was the path to go down. It was during that period where I took a, a major right and um, uh, right hand turn and um, my brother, uh, was actually living in China. He'd also speak, uh, taken Chinese language classes. I I continued to speak Chinese in in college. Um, not very well, but I went through the motions and he had made a career out of it. So he was living over in, in Beijing, um, throughout post-college life. And he had moved to Lhasa, Tibet, which is the Tibet autonomous region of China. Um, and he was, uh, involved with a a non-government organization, an NGO, um, that was working with Tibetan artisans, um, and he called me one day. And he said, "Hey, look, we're looking for a guy that's got a little bit of financial experience, um, and we're trying to set up a, a microfinance lending program. and Is it something that you would be interested in?" Um, and literally the next day, I wasn't on a plane to Tibet, but I resigned. Uh, didn't take me much <laughs> convincing. Mm-hmm. I was looking for a change, um, and I started my journey of kind of you know both literally getting out of New York City and the, the financial community, but then also figuratively as well as far as making a making a move. And so I, I moved to Tibet for about two years, which was um, short of having like my family and, and my wife. It's been the greatest experience of my, my life and um, getting to be out and amongst, you know, people uh, and not in this, uh, the confines of a, a cubicle um, and, and really kind of making the rubber meet the road in as much as you know try to help people like build small companies and that's that was the premise of the whole microfinance lending is let's help them create sustainable enterprises and and provide them with the tools be it business training or in my case the the uh, financial backing to start you know in one case we started a, a rug enterprise that was in a city called Shigatse, which is a very small town in, in Tibet. And so we, we set up a, a, a carpet enterprise. In um, another, we had a, a group of uh, female um, uh, uh, textile workers. And so we set up a small sweater cooperative. Um, and it was, you know, Chris, one of these life-changing once-in-a-lifetime opportunities. Um, and it was kind of that that set the seeds of, I'm never going back into, you know, sitting in a cubicle and, and, and working. Um and so you kind of fast forward from there. I, I, I moved back to the U.S. because all foreigners typically leave uh, Tibet during the, the winter months. And I got involved with, because uh, I was on the beach, I, uh, with the intention of going back. Um, I was recruited by a small frozen food company in, in, of all places, St. Augustine, Florida, to come and help them kind of get their books in order. Um, and, um, and yeah, and so I, I, I moved down, down there and it was supposed to be a short term consulting a- arrangement where I was just going to help them do some cash accounting and whatnot, which are skill sets in the world of finance that you don't have. That's, that's basically, you know, on the one hand you're doing valuation and trying to make transactions where on the other, it was like trying to like, all right, how, how much money are we making here? And so it was a totally different skill set, but I took it because of the advice I had gotten, you know, two years prior from my, my guy at Bear Stearns. I was like, okay, here's an opportunity to. To kind of get involved with like a living, breathing entity um that was actually making something and needed help. And um and so ultimately what happened was and it wasn't supposed to go this way. Um but I, I worked for them for about a month or so. The company was going totally sideways. Um we had a, a manufacturing facility that was there um and it was just it was kind of bad. And uh the owners of the company made the I don't know if it was the right move uh or the best move, but it was what they did and they they uh, fired the management team and they asked if I wanted to take a kick at running them. And th- again, I didn't think that hard or long over, you know, the, the opportunity the upside or whatnot, but I thought, well, this is kind of interesting and sure. I, th- I think I can do this. And at that point I thought, well, gee, it'll take a couple of years and we'll sell it and we'll do something with it. And it turned out to be a, a, a much, much longer sort of, um, endeavor. And, and ultimately, you know, what happened was, and this might get ahead of the, the conversation a little bit, but um, a lot of things changed. Um, we built it up and, and we, we did some sales things and we did some offshoring things, which is where I think we want to kind of get into a little bit. So I don't want to um, you know, jump the, the gun here too much, but built up that company. We had an exit uh, two years ago, three years ago that um, uh, I stuck around with, with, with the new buyer. Um, for a while, and then that brought me to my, my current um, gig, and hopefully people are still hanging on with the, the story of John McGarvey, and I now am the um, CEO and co-founder of Dow Labs, which is a, a consumer product company, and we are changing the way, in, and you can mark my words, we are changing the way Americans and Westerners approach health by making uh, traditional Chinese medicine, so kind of it all goes back here, making Chinese, traditional Chinese medicine very approachable to Western consumers, so in a nutshell, that's the story of John McGarvey.
1: That's great. Um, I, so I want to go back to your your Wall Street days, and I'm curious. Um, now that you're a, a seasoned entrepreneur and you have you know experience internationally, starting your own businesses and creating you know and selling businesses and working in Tibet, um, what do you think the folks on Wall Street lack? And not in a negative way, but just lack. It, yep compared to an experienced season international entrepreneurs
0: a- absolutely um so it takes all sorts of skill sets to make a business run you know yeah. uh and 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 that's that's true you need finance you need marketing you need sales you need you know uh ops you you need everything. New York City and, and sort of Wall Street and the sort of financial services industry can get very insular very quickly from the standpoint of, of just looking at numbers and data all the time. You know, mm-hmm. um, Any business can be modeled. Any forecast can be modeled. Any sort of uh, cost can be broken down. You can do surveys and you can ask people and we can analyze, analyze, analyze. But at the end of the day, I think sometimes we miss the human element when we sit in a cubicle mm-hmm. of, you know, gee, m- market dynamics are such that maybe somebody doesn't want that. Or maybe two people in an office aren't getting along. And as a consequence, particularly with a startup, if they're not getting along, that slows everything down. But gee, if you take time to, to kind of course correct that or you piss somebody off or whatnot, that can lead to, well, God, now i got to find somebody else to do that job. And oh, by the way, I've like you know, invested in that person, time, money, energy, training, all that kind of stuff. And it's like, well, gee, that doesn't all necessarily filter back to a spreadsheet you know? Um, and I, I think I, I see it still with our current business where like we need to be able to model things out and take the data that we have and and make assumptions. Um, but that human element of, of decision-making and and experiential sort of, um, uh, embracing a product or, or being part of a team like that doesn't always translate to a spreadsheet. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay.
1: I want to ask a little bit deeper, maybe. Um, can you tell a difference between, uh, you know, there's a lot of people on wall street that study, uh, you know, they, they go to school just to become big bankers. Right. Mm-hmm. And they go to these, these Ivy league colleges. Um, I always found that like, if I, if I wanted somebody running, um, my bank or my company, you know, my thought is though I've never been in that environment on wall street and, and amongst Ivy league schools, my thought is like, like, there's a different thought process between the bare knuckled entrepreneur that goes out and creates something him or herself, and a person that studies at school. Because I have an MBA too, and I know what I learned in my in school is much different than 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 what I had to apply, you know, in the real world. Um, so I'm curious. Like, do you think that's a problem with the, with what's happening on Wall Street and, and the distance they have with with you know the normal regular. Joe's and, and regular folks in, in America and around the world?
0: Well, I, I don't know if it's a problem. Um, the way I would say I've been the most successful now interacting with people that are on Wall Street and, and who did go to great schools um, and maybe their life and their career has always been in that environment is, um, and, and this gets into something that, that I think has helped me just you know, be successful as an entrepreneur, and I put that in quotations, is you know, being a bit self-aware of the limitations, you know? Um, one of our advisors for our current company is very much a, a numbers-oriented person, but he's very quick to say, is this helpful? You know, uh, and he's very receptive to, well, let me understand the sort of backstory of what's going on in the, day, in the day-to-day in the office or out on the road, you know? Um, I think there is, though, chronically, perhaps, as there has been for a long time, a, a, dist- a, a difference between you know, Wall Street and, and Main Street America, and that's a certainly very much different topic, Um, but ultimately you got to have people to do these things that you are modeling or that you are forecasting or that you are predicting will happen, you know, and getting people to do that, you know, day in, day out that, that, or at least embracing and understanding that like, okay, at some point we got to transact this or we have to execute this. And and that can be very tough. You know, when I was, when I was working, uh, you know, on wall street in New York city, like we'd model stuff out and we were kids. You know, and and we thought we were so smart and we were, you know, we we were smart, you know, but that's very, very different from then translating it to the, the, you know, execution of, of, you know, how this loan is going to be used to drive some sort of a return, you know? Um, And it takes a lot of work to do those types of things. And so I think there is – I don't know if I'm answering the question as, as specific as you would like, but I think it takes a blend of both unquestionably. Yeah. And that applies not just to banking, but it applies to marketing. It applies to education. I mean it's like you have to have that nuanced like awareness of, of both skill sets.
1: Yeah, and I agree. And I think that's something that traditional education – um, it really lacks in helping people understand money and, and how money really operates. And I think that's why there's a huge distance between Wall Street and Main Street, because Main Street, you know, the best they did for us for financial education was teach us how to uh, balance a checkbook. Yeah. You know? And that's like, that doesn't even apply these days, you know? And so But anyway, interesting. Okay, so let's jump into your days in Tibet. So you spent two years in Tibet, right? Uh-huh. Um. I always imagine – I've never been there, but I I imagine it's an amazing place. And what year were you – so it had to be like in the early days of microfinance when you were over there, right? It was
0: very early days. Uh, The Gates Foundation was doing stuff. Um, There were some foundations that were doing some stuff. But it was about 2005 to 2007-ish, if uh, memory serves me correctly. Um, And it was – it was a little bit of the wild, wild west in terms of you were certainly out and off the grid, um, and you know it's a it's a incredible place with incredible people with a very complicated um, social dynamics that are still very much dictating the sort of day to day experience of uh, the Tibetans that live there.
1: Yeah, I remember like when when microfinance got big. And then it kind of got a bad reputation. And maybe this is just from things I heard. Maybe that's not really the truth. But um, and then what's the state of microfinance these days? Do you know much about it?
0: I think it's uh, got a resurgence, um, okay. but it's in different, in different forms. It did get a bad rap because so much of the time you don't know where the money ultimately ends up. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you get on a micro, micro level and you're. Pretty far off the grid, um, and you've got like caste systems that are involved, or you've got some issues as it relates to you know male-dominated societies or whatnot, or or you know just bizarre politics. Where oftentimes, and we found this as well, where the money would go to the guy that was running the show as opposed to the the people that actually needed it.
1: Yeah, that's very true. Um, what would you say, John, is your biggest takeaway from your your time in Tibet? <sighs>
0: You know, there's something to be said about doing a degree of of public good or service. Um, It it was a a magical time for me personally because I believe so much in what we were doing um, and why we were doing it. And I think the ability just to help people that mm-hmm. otherwise wouldn't get the opportunity to receive help or get the sort of gifts that we've been granted throughout life just by virtue of, of where we, we, we landed um, when we were born. I, I think that, that was the biggest takeaway as far as just like doing something that was really good and doing it with people that were really passionate about it um, and having a, a a great time in the process. You know, I, I believe in the the idea of we can have fun doing serious things, and boy oh boy, we hit on both of those. You know, when I was there, um, and so I would say that would be a, a takeaway from it is is just that experience. And that I I am now obviously not in the the nonprofit sector, but having that experience is something that I, I will never forget. But then number two, uh, and I would say this to any sort of young person that's listening that is thinking about making some type of a jump um you know life goes pretty fast and as i said earlier i mean outside of um marrying my wife and having my children like that was the best thing i've ever done in my life and boy oh boy you know i made a quick decision to do it but (laughs) it wasn't without being like what the hell is this like what am i doing and um you know taking that jump sometime is is very risky and very ballsy but man oh man like it, it can pay off in spades
1: yeah, I imagine. Would you, now that you've left the nonprofit sector and, you know, started your own businesses, do you think you would ever go back? Absolutely. Yeah,
0: there's absolutely no doubt about it. And, and we try to sprinkle in some degree of good in what we're doing and do it in a very authentic, genuine way. Um, uh, but I would love nothing more. And I will do this in my career is once, you know, I'm a bit older and um, perhaps don't have the drive for the business is putting my skills and my passion for just, you know, I, I'm working with a, a, a nonprofit here in Minneapolis right now um, called My Very Own Bed um, and I'm as passionate when I work with the owner and the founder of, of that organization, I shouldn't say owner, but the, the founder, I'm equally as passionate about applying my entrepreneurial business schools, uh, skills to that as I am my day-to-day business, if not more so at times and I would love to, you know, when, when the kids are older and, and I'm a bit farther along um to be able to apply that same sort of that, that genuine drive um in these skills um to a nonprofit because nonprofits need hard business skills. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they they do. Um and they need real world experience because even though it is a nonprofit, it's still operating in a real world, you know, uh, environment and, and so absolutely to answer your question.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Now this is when you first started dabbling with Chinese medicine, right, when you were in Tibet?
0: Mm-hmm. That was my first experience.
1: And and you mentioned in your bio that you first experienced free and easy wanderer. What is that exactly?
0: Okay, so um, free and easy wanderer is a a, uh, herbal uh, formula that's uh, very old but very, very beautiful. Um, It's based off of uh, a combination of eight Chinese herbs that uh, translate to Xiaoyao San. And Xiaoyao San is a formula that is used very widely across. It has been for hundreds of years, and it just kind of makes you feel good, uh, but not from the perspective of a high or energy bump or a, a boost. Um, it's just a combination of herbs that helps calm the mind, body, and the spirit, uh, and has all sorts of wonderful other benefits as well from the standpoint of digestion. Uh, women will use it quite regularly during the PMS phase of their cycle to just kind of balance and, and normalize hormones Um It can make you sleep better. It just does all these wonderful things. And I was exposed to it back then as just like, I can't remember the circumstances, but I became, I don't want to say addicted to it, but I I absolutely fell in love with it. And so when we ultimately created Dow labs um we knew that that was a formula that we had to use as inspiration and, and we do and it's one of our more popular formulas called uh, emotional balance um but it's just a, a formula that's very gentle but very very effective and just and i actually took one about an hour ago before this podcast to get me ready um it just helps calm the mind body and and, and provide wonderful focus
1: Well, did you did you dive deeper into the chinese medicine while you were in while you the were in Tibet?
0: The, the 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 only other experience i had and and um this was equally as profound as we were having a thanksgiving celebration um and i got very sick from the food that we had that night um and it was just awful food poisoning and i was up and at him again and within 48 hours just by taking chinese herbs um and and that was the the extent of the experience with with herbs then outside of like they were everywhere like Ch- chinese herbs and tibetan herbs are very very similar um but that's the you know, very much a focal point of their healthcare system and still is across China. Um, but it was really then going to, to the the world of frozen vegetables and getting my, my hands dirty and, and hitting the, the pavement and, and working with um, ultimately retailers like Whole Foods and Costco and uh, Kroger and whatnot, where I got exposed to the natural product industry. Uh-huh. Um, and that ultimately led to this vision of, well, gee, there's nobody doing anything with Chinese herbs um, and and here's the opportunity and so I, I was exposed to the natural products industry and had the obviously the, the benchmark with both my Chinese studies and spending a lot of time in that part of the world and certainly the herbs when I was in, when I was in Tibet.
1: So let's fast forward or jump forward to when you decided to work with the the frozen food company. Um, You had left Tibet and then you got the opportunity to, to, to work with this company. And it was kind of um, a small company with not much going on and you grew it to where it had 10,000 points of retail distribution, right?
0: Absolutely. It was um, when I landed there again, it was in St. Augustine, Florida, and um, I, I, I won't, hide the ball, we, we made a lot of frozen eggplant products, um, mm-hmm. which was is not a very sexy vegetable. And I know more <laughs> than the average bearer, uh, I hate to admit, when it comes to talking about eggplant, uh, my buddy in New York calls me Eggplant John. Um, <laughs> but we ultimately processed all sorts of other vegetables as well. And it was very, very, underline very specialized, but we were very good at it. Um, and we had this, this plant in St. Augustine, Florida, which was this dilapidated old barn where we would bring in the eggplant and we would process it and we'd freeze it and we'd send it out and whatnot. Um, and ultimately, um, that was not going to be sustainable because the plant was so dilapidated that it was just killing the company and yield suck. Um, and I don't want to kind of get too far in front of your, your, your the, the sort of, you know, the story here, but ultimately what we did is we um, we closed that facility and we um, worked with a handful of manufacturers in the, the southeast United States, which allowed us to diversify our product portfolio, which we did, and then ultimately um, – Uh, and and that in so doing really allowed us to grow our retail business, which is the 10,000 points of distribution. I'm sure like if we put them all together, we had a lot more than that, but we, we built a brand that, um, wasn't tethered to just one industry and with one product and we push it out across the U S to, to natural product stores and whatnot. Um, and that is ultimately the, the business that, uh, that got me the exposure to the retail world.
1: Um, so I have a few questions, and, and I want to learn more about the, uh, the structure of the business and how you grew it. Did you grow it internationally, or was it just in the U.S.?
0: No, we, we did grow it internationally. We, uh, shipped to Canada, uh, points in Europe. And then periodically we would get these like harebrained purchase orders from people in South America that would buy our stuff. So we were, we were pushing it primarily in the U S but we uh, crossed the borders as well. Um, you know, at very specific times.
1: And did you focus mainly on, on natural health, frozen foods? Is that right?
0: That ultimately is where we, we, you know, you have to make decisions about where in the, the store you want to be. And, and then we obviously were frozen, so we had to be in those aisles. But then it's like, all right, now where do you want to be within those? And so we found uh, and built a great niche um, in the, the natural food frozen category. Um, and that's where you get into the likes of the Whole Foods and the Trader Joe's um, and the the co-ops, so to speak, mm-hmm. and Sprouts and whatnot. So, so Yeah.
1: I'm kind of curious on your take of the the food industry in the U.S. today. Hey, listeners, we're going to wrap up there for the first half of John's interview. The second half is published next, so make sure you check that one out. Be sure to subscribe and listen, and it'll be updated right on your phone as soon as it comes live. We'll see you soon. Hey listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high performance productivity coaching and our annual Get Shit Done Live Retreat in Thailand. Both are designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to get a lot of work done rapidly and whether you need some personal coaching while working away at home or a retreat in Thailand where you can get out of your normal routine and surround yourself with other successful entrepreneurs, we have those options for you. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com and we'll see you on the next podcast.